Great to be with you today. Thank you for letting me to visit, to visit uh, Waco for the very first time in my life. I've uh, never been here before. Uh, you guys have surrounded Magnolia. I can't even get to it anymore because of all the construction there. And I got to say, I was expecting more shiplap uh, in this place. But uh, anyway, it's great to be with you. Uh, I live in Orlando, Florida. My wife, Lisa, we moved there about six years ago. Uh, but my kids all grew up in Arizona. So we moved from the oven to the dishwasher, if you understand what that's like. Uh, and it's been quite a challenge for us. And I'll talk about that a little bit, a little bit later. Hey, it's great to be with you. Dean, still thank you so much for the invitation uh, to come and be a part. We're excited about Rock Point and many other churches that are converged here in Texas. And we're new to Texas, um, but we're grateful for what God is doing uh, in our churches and all the other churches that believe the gospel that are in this state and moving forward, advancing the gospel in our life. So I want to begin just by... I'm going to tell you some stories. We'll get to the text in just a few minutes. Colossians chapter 3 is going to be where we're going to be. But I want to tell you something that happened last fall. I was, I was here in Texas. I was in Denton. I was here for a gathering called the GACX, the Global Alliance for Church Multiplication. I know it's an M, but it's an X where we come from. And uh, we were talking about, and our goal was to plant 5 million new churches in the next 10 years around the world among the least reached people's of the world. It's 80 organizations working together to try to figure out how to, how to do that. And we were having our meeting uh, up there. The good news, the bad news is we have not reached our 5 million goal, but we have been able to count uh, 2.1 million new churches in the last 10 years. We're grateful for what God is doing among some of the least reached people of the world. But I'm having this, this meeting with the board. I'm the chairman of the board. And one of the leaders comes in, we're talking, and he is a, he's a succession leader. He's taken over for somebody else. Someone else has built the foundation. He's building on it. As his foundation was built by his father. Uh, it was a missions organization where his dad was this very systemic, systematic, uh, plotting kind of personality. And this guy is larger than life. I mean, he comes into the room. You just know he, he's there. And so he's nothing like his dad. But he loves the gospel, and he's trying to build on the foundation his father has built. But, but the board, the leaders of the organization, are all expecting him to be his dad. And they're pressing him into this mold that's just not his giftedness, it's not his skill, it's not his vision. And he's feeling very pressed down by the organization he's working in. Can anyone relate? Does anyone know what I'm talking about? If you've ever taken over a ministry for somebody else, you realize there's, there's tendencies. To the, the last seven words of the church, we shall not be moved, is what the church always says. So... Um, they mean that in all sorts of ways. And he was just distraught. He's like, I, I can't be my father. I, I've got to be the, the person that God created me to be, the gifts, use the gifts that God's given me to get uh, to. And he's inspirational and he's movement oriented. And he's, uh, you know, he's, he's out there. And he says, Scott, I just feel like walking out. And I get it. A lot of pastors these days, especially, feel like walking out uh, with all the difficulties. That was Monday. Tuesday, I'm visiting an old friend. He was a pastor in Arizona. He was an amazing communicator, amazing pastor. He grew a church from 700 to 7,000 in seven years. And it was an amazing experience. I, I learned so much from him, and we were kind of, we were helping each other. But what I didn't know is that he had some secret sin. He had some fatal flaws in his character. And, and uh, after a while, he, he failed out of ministry. And over the last five years, I have been working with him, helping him, trying to restore his marriage, trying to restore his life, trying to restore his faith. He's walking with Jesus. He's in the Dallas area, so I went to have dinner with him. And I had the first opportunity after five years to say, how did this happen? 
Well, what, what, what happened? He said, I, I, I let my guard down. And he, he talked about how he, he crossed the line uh, morally in some ways. And then he realized it, repented, came back, but there were no consequences. And so it just emboldened him to do it again. And he went even farther and then farther and then farther until finally he was caught. And he lost the church. He lost everything. He almost lost his marriage. And uh, he said, Scott, he just looked at me and said, Scott, I thought after I didn't get caught time and time again, I thought I was just invincible. I thought God was so with me that no one could touch me. And the arrogance, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He, he didn't walk out. He, he failed out. That was Tuesday. Wednesday, I'm looking for a much better conversation on Wednesday. I was excited because this guy had a church that was in, he was in the, uh, the fastest growing churches, Outreach Magazine's 100 fastest growing churches. He was in the top 100. He's, he's up there in, in Dallas. And so this has got to be a better conversation than the first two days, right? So, uh, so I'm ca- talking with, I'm, I'm walking into the restaurant. It's a barbecue place because that's what you do in Texas, evidently. It's a barbecue place. And I walk up to him and he's just downcast. I'm like, what's going on? Your, your church was just named in the fastest growing churches in America. And he's like, and he starts talking about his 23-year-old son who just got addicted to meth. And yet ministry was going well, but life was just falling in, caving in on him. And he says, God, I'm not sure I could do this anymore. Burnout. Fail out, walk out, burnout. Aren't you glad you guys invited me to chapel today? I'm just so full of exciting good news. But that's what we see, isn't it? That's what we see in, in ministry. Uh, we fail out, walk out, burn out. Fa- fail out's a, a character issue, a moral issue. It's an inner life issue. Um, walk out is more of, a, it's more of a chemistry issue between the leadership team. Right? I just don't understand them. They don't understand me. And then, um, and then fail out, walk out, and then burn out is, is more of a, a competency. I'm not sure how to carry all the weight of ministry. And we see that over and over. And that was a year ago. And Fast forward now through March and March 11th, where President Trump talked about COVID and said, this is a, this is a, a big deal. And you saw everything closed down and stay at home orders. And you get to, you get to March and Ahmaud Arbery is, is murdered in Georgia and then George Floyd. Um, and then the, the, the riots and the rallies and the other things that happen. And we, we see these social things happen. And you know, the finances are going up and down and, you know, and, and now good news is next week, election. I mean, we're just, you know, it's a trifecta. Uh, we've got, we've got a, a pandemic that's health. We've got a pandemic that's justice. We've got a pandemic that's political. And along with that, there's this cancel culture going on. I don't know if you've, you've seen the cancel culture, but if someone doesn't agree with you, they can't be your friend anymore, evidently. Uh, we see that in theological circles for years where we can't disagree about things. This is an academic institution. Hopefully you do disagree and wrestle with things here because that's what you're supposed to do is wrestle with what, what is the truth of Scripture? What does it teach? We're supposed to wrestle. But, but these days, it's it politically, you know, uh, all sorts of things uh, just, just separate us. In fact, I was in Arizona last month and the pastor was speaking from Romans 15 where it talks about um, this meat sacrifice to idols and he was referring back to the Corinthian church, and he was, he was talking about this. And he was saying, can you imagine that? The church was splitting over meat. Splitting over meat. He said, can you imagine that? A four-letter word beginning with M that has to do with your mouth, that churches would actually, would actually fight over things like that? I have no idea 
um, why churches would just split over a four-letter word beginning with M that has to do with your mouth. But, but evidently, it's happening these days. It's crazy, the world we're living in. And, and the pressure of ministry, the pressure of staying on task and staying on mission is just so deep and so strong. Uh, whether you're a student or whether you're uh, ministering at an organization, uh, this is a big, uh, big deal. So how do we maintain? You know, Romans chapter 12, verse 11 says, never be lacking in zeal. Keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. How do we, how do, we do that? Well, there's lots of places I could go, but we're going to go to Colossians chapter 3. And we're going to start in verse 15. And what I want to do is just give you, again, this is, I'm trying to be very practical, some what I call recentering routines. Recentering routines. Uh, uh, Henry Cloud had a conversation last spring called The Psychology of Crisis. If you haven't watched it, you probably should. He talks about the things we lose in crisis. We lose our routine. We lose our connection. We lose our sense of purpose. And I'm hoping to address some of those things in this, in this conversation. In Colossians chapter 3, uh, Paul has, has addressed a church that he's never met before. He's, he's heard about their faith. He's inspired by their faith. He's reminded them of the cosmic Christ in chapter 1. And he, he, he reminds them just as you receive Jesus Christ as, as Lord, so walk in him in chapter 2. And challenges them not to give in to the legalism at the end of that chapter. And then chapter 3 is a whole new spin. And he takes spins the first 14 verses. Just a beautiful, beautiful verse. Some of my favorite in scriptures. Set your minds on the things above where Christ is. See the right hand of, of God. Set our minds on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. If you've died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ is revealed, you'll be revealed with him in glory. He has this beautiful uh, picture of things. But in verse 15, he's talking about, he's talking to the church. He's telling them, how do I deal with the situations and circumstances that that I'm in? And verse 15, he says this, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. To which you were called in one body and be, be thankful. He says, let the peace of Christ rule. How many of you think we need more peace <laughs> these days? There's, there's positional peace in Christ, and then there's experiential peace we experience through Christ. And I think he's talking more about the, the latter in, in this, although there probably is some application to the former as well. But let, let the peace of Christ rule. That word rule is a, it's a fun word. It's actually a word they were using in the Olympics for the umpire or the judge, the one who, who made the call. You know, whether the, who won and things like that. And he says, let the peace of Christ rule. Let it make the call in your circumstances. Let it make the call in your decision making. Let it make the call in your heart and, and your mind. And, and I think this is talking about our, our, our first effort or our first activity. Is, what I'm going to encourage you is, where are you getting your life-giving thoughts? Where are you getting those things that actually rule in the decision-making process in your life? Has anyone here been overwhelmed by the difficulties of our time? I mean, anyone here tired? I got, I got Zoom fatigue. I have crisis fatigue. I have decision fatigue. I got political fatigue. I'm, I'm tired. And I've seen pastors and leaders all around the country just kind of, their, their, their emotions are right there at the surface, way closer to the surface than they ever were before. And they're, and they're jumping, uh, they're jumping to conclusions. I had a pastor a few weeks ago. I said, let me get this right. You've got one elder in your church who's giving you a hard time and you're ready to give up. It never would have happened before, but we're, we're just right there in the surface in the season where it's just everything, we're just so tired 
And we've got to have these recentering routines. We've got to have a place where we have life-giving thoughts coming into our lives. Let the peace of Christ rule. Let it make the call. Even when your circumstances are this, your emotions say this, will you let the peace of Christ rule? Will you trust him in this circumstance? So back in... uh, um, 2005, I was the pastor at Sun Valley. See, they were real nice to me, and thank you so much for that nice uh, introduction. But, I mean, if, you, if you're like me, you realize that um, none of us really know what we're doing. We're just trusting Christ and trying to figure out how to, how to move forward. And so the, the, pre- the preface to that story of 5,000, the church was actually 400 when I took it over, and a year later it was 200. That's why they made me president, because I know. Um, <laughs> It was, I mean, I, I just didn't know what I was doing. I was having all sorts, there was all sorts of messes in the, in the church and it's just difficult. And I was a session leader and things like that. It was, it was just really hard. But then God was gracious to us. We got from 400 to 400 in the first five years that I was a pastor. And then we built a building and it just exploded in growth. And so in 2005, we got from 400 to 1200 in, a, in about two year period of time. And things were just running great. I remember going to Chicago land. I was at a, an event with Converge and, and uh, I was at a, at a meeting and I laid down, I laid down in the hotel room and all of a sudden the world began to spin. I had vertigo. What I didn't know, that was October 2005, what I didn't know was it was going to last for 19 straight months. That the world would spin for me every single day, every single hour for 19 straight months. I tried all sorts of things during that time to, to get rid of this. I got glasses. By the way, you guys look great. I mean, I assume you're smiling, but it, yeah. I got glasses during that time. Um, I went to a chiropractor. That guy cracked me up. Um, you're welcome. Uh, I, I actually thought I might have a brain tumor, and I got my brain scanned. And the, and the results came back and, and said, there's nothing remarkable there. That's a medical term, evidently, but my wife would agree with that. You know, nothing remarkable there. Finally, after, after 19 months, I was on a sabbatical. I thought, I, I'm not sure I can lead a large church. It was continuing to grow. I can't do this. It's not sustainable for me to, to I mean, I, the only good thing that happened during COVID is I got a Lazy Boy recliner that I slept in. Uh, I still have the recliner. It's great. But, you know, but I slept in a recliner. I couldn't even sleep in a bed for 19 months. And yet here, the ministry in the outside, everything looked good, and it's up and to the right, and I'm just dying inside. And I go to this, this professional, and I tell him what's going on with me, and after five minutes, he says, I think I know your problem. <laughs> I'm like, you do not know my problem. I mean, five minutes, with, come on, it's been 19 months. And he, he grabs a bottle of water, and he said, this is, this is you. And the amount of water in the bottle is the amount of stress you carry as a leader every single day. And he said, and the good news is when more stress comes on, it's like more water in the bottle and it overflows in the form of vertigo. And I said, well, how is that good news? And he said, because with most pastors, it's a stroke. And I said, you, you have my attention. What do I need to do? And he took the bottle. He said, he said you, must, you must lower the amount of water in the bottle. I'm like, what in the world does that mean? He says, Scott, you've got to figure out how not, how not to carry so much stress. I said, what do I need to do? He said, I, I want you to journal. I said, I'm a man. I don't journal. No, it's not, it's not going to happen. He said, no, not dear diary kind of stuff. He said, I want you to journal your emotions. I want you to write all the things you're afraid of, all the way concerned about, disturbed by, frustrated with. I want you to just write everything 
down. Um, and I want you to ask yourself some questions. Number one, what are you so afraid of? Because most of stress is based on fear. What are you so afraid of? And what's the worst thing that can happen? I was like, well, I, I can do that. He said, and the third question is this, is God big enough? Is he big enough to handle this? So that afternoon I went home and I got my journal. No, not Dear Diary. And I started writing six pages later after I had written everything down I was concerned about, worried about, frustrated with, etc. I began to wrestle. I began to try to align my heart with God's heart. Align my trust with who he is. Align me with, with, with him. I began to cast my cares on him because I believed. I actually believed he cared for me. And that was June 17th, 2007. And the reason I know that is that was the very last day I ever had vertigo. God met me in that place where I chose to align my heart with his heart, where I chose to believe he's bigger than any circumstance I could ever be in. And I let the peace of Christ rule. I cast my cares on him because he cared for me. I set my mind on the things above, not on the things that were on the earth. I trusted him. And the anger, the wrath, the malice, the slander, the abusive speech were gone. And heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience began to form in me. And it's been a daily routine every single day since then. I journal every single day about those things, casting my cares on him because he cares for me. Verse 15 talks about life-giving thoughts. Where are your life-giving thoughts coming from? Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell on you richly as you teach and admonish one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making gratitude in your hearts to God. So it goes from the peace of Christ to the word of, uh, of Christ. And it says it needs to dwell in us richly. In words, lavishly. It's lavish affluence results in lasting influence in our lives. And we're just trusting God's word to form us, to help us, to grow us through his power of his Holy Spirit. Wisdom is where we're moving forward. But the second half of the verse is probably the more important part that I want to get to. It's, it says, as you teach and admonish one another. It goes from inner life to inner circle. There, there are people around us that have permission to speak into our lives, that encourage us, exhort us, challenge us, uh, spur us on to love and, and good deeds. That the Christian life is relational and incarnational. It's us being with others and walking together in the one another's of Scripture that we've got to figure out how to actually have a group that, that we live life with. And I have found, especially in COVID, that there's a, I know COVID was a call to insulation, but we made it a call to isolation. That we're all living life by ourselves. We're not having people speak into our lives. It's a dangerous place to be these days. We, we've got to have friends. We've got to have people in our lives that can teach us, that can admonish us, that, that can encourage us, that can challenge us. So we go from life-giving thoughts to life-giving relationships. Let me ask you, who are the life-giving relationships you have these days? The people that you just can't wait to see. The people who, who, are, who just are truly friends. Let me give you a definition of friend. I, I, uh, uh, I've been working on this for a long time. It's not perfect, but uh, it's helpful for me. Here's what a true friend is. Because you have acquaintances, and you have friends, you have situational friends, you have seasonal friends, and you have lifelong friends. And 
But here's what a real friend is. Number one, a real friend knows everything about you and loves you anyway. They see the, the flaws, they see the difficulties, they see the challenges. They, they love you, they love you anyway. So, so who is that? Second, a, a real friend speaks truth to you and you actually listen. Who has permission to speak truth to you in your life? To tell you when you've gone the wrong way, to tell you when you're, when you're, you're not being smart, to tell you that you need to, you need to think about that again. Who is, who is that person that speaks truth to you and you listen? Third, a real friend doesn't always agree with you, and you respect that. They don't always agree with you. I would imagine that among the faculty here at Truett, I imagine there are a number of different opinions theologically. And um, it's so much fun. When I went to Columbia, and I just remember uh, we would have these two professors who would come in, and Igor Hodges and Brad Mullen, and Brad was an Arminian, and, uh, and, and uh, Hodges was couldn't be more you know, Cal- Calvinistic in his, uh, in his thinking. And they would bring, invite each other into class and they would argue in class and then have lunch together. And their families lived life together. And it was a beautiful thing. They were, they were very, very close friends, even though theologically they didn't agree. Same thing in politics. Republicans and Democrats can actually be in the same church and they can be friends. They don't have to agree with you. And you respect that. So they know everything about you, love you anyway. They don't always agree with you, and you respect that. They speak truth to you, and you actually listen. Here's my last one, definition of a friend. They stick by you even when you've been stupid. They stick by you even when you've been stupid. Um, We've got so many people in life that just give up on us. We watch so many people just kind of join the cancel culture and just say, "I, I can't be a part of you. And yet there's a redemptive side to the Christian life. There's a redemptive side, what Christ has done and what he's called us to, a re- reconciliation efforts of the church. And we just, we have that, we join the world in this, in this kind of thinking. So who are the friends that you have? So I, I decided to make some friends when I moved to Arizona. I moved from Virginia and went across the country. And um, I was looking for some youth pastors to spend some time with. I found a guy up in Tempe, Arizona. His name was Paul. He was the youth pastor of one of the large churches in the area. And I called him up and said, hey, man, I got no friends. Please help me. <laughs> you know, so uh, so uh, he's like, yeah, let's do this. So we started meeting every week talking about uh, our lives and ministries. And I really considered Paul to be a great friend. And we, we did this for a while. And then after about six months, I called him and no answer. I called him again, no answer. By the way, there's no cell phones back then. I'm dating myself. But so I actually had to drive over to the church and I went to see the office. Hey, is Paul around? And they're like, yeah, he's, he's not around anymore. I said, what happened? He said, well, he ran off with his secretary and left his wife and three kids behind. And I thought we had an accountability relationship in this friendship. But you know what I figured out? Accountability only works when you're honest. We're as sick as our secrets. And Paul wasn't being honest with me. It wasn't an authentic relationship. Authenticity is this, trusting God and others with the real me. And that's not what was happening in our conversation. And I had to start over again. And I finally found another guy who was a youth pastor close by. We began meeting. He was very different than me. Um, He was much younger. He was single. Um, But he was available. He was faithful. And we were both teachable with each other. And we began meeting together. We did this thing called SOAP. I know this is going to sound stupid. I know you guys are all smart. But SOAP just was, 
Soap was this. S was scripture. We would talk about scripture with each other. What, what is God teaching you from his word? Not what are you reading, what are you studying, but what is God using to influence your life? What are the things he's put on your heart from the word that are changing you? We would talk about that every week. O was for outreach. Who are the people you're reaching out to? Christian life is not just about fellowship. There's an advance to it. And so we're trying to figure out who, who, who are you reaching out to? Who is coming to Christ? Who's in process with you? Who are the people outside the church you're making relationship with? And I was in seminary during the time. I got to tell you, nothing was more life-giving than having friendships outside the church uh, during, during seminary. We, but who are these people outreach? A was for accountability. Uh, I was a young married. He was single. We had different questions, but we come up with three questions for each other. My questions were, did I date my wife? This week, which, by the way, if you're in seminary and you're not dating your spouse, um, think again, please, please take care of your marriage. Please take care of marriage. So are you dating your wife? Were you kind with your words? I was a young, uh, young married and I was learning this whole new thing about how to treat my wife with uh, honesty, respect and and care and things like that. Um, uh, What what were you on? Were you were you faithful to your wife and your thoughts was my third question that my accountability partner would ask me. And then finally, the last question we both threw in was, did you just lie to me about any one of those things? Um, and so we had that. And then P was for prayer. Not are we praying, not, not uh, did you pray, but are we praying for each other? So scripture, outreach, accountability, prayer. Um, the joke was that soap kept us clean. Um, we thought it was a silly little thing, but we did it every week for 20 years. And he is my closest friend in the world. I don't live in Arizona anymore, but I go back there and it's like it was yesterday that we saw each other because the bond is so tight. Our families grew up together. We love each other. We're brothers. I even get his kids <laughs> if something, God forbid, would have happened to him. Um, friendship is so vital. Life-giving relationships are so vital. So let me ask you, who are the life-giving relationships you have? Who are the ones that you just can't wait to see them? Who are the ones that speak truth to you and listen? Who are the ones that know everything about you, love you anyway? Who are the ones that have stuck by you even in the hardest of times? Do you have those people? Are you willing to build those kind of relationships? People who can teach and admonish you. Verse 17 is is kind of a catch-all verse. It says this, and whatever you do, whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to him, the God, the Father. Whatever you do, so I'm going to go from life-giving thoughts to life-giving relationships to life-giving activity. We'll talk about that in a minute. But it says, whatever you do, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, which means if he were here, he would do it for his honor, for his glory. We've got to make sure as Christians, whatever these life-giving activities uh, are, that they're honoring to Christ, that they honor him, that they, they uh, give glory, glory to him. But we've got to find these activities. Last fall, I was in the, in the Bay Area of of California and was with Nancy Ortberg and she was talking about a study she was doing and she said you know one of the things they found out is they were looking at the longevity of pastors and leaders in ministry and she said you won't believe what the most common uh, characteristic of people who are long in ministry is and I thought well it's, it's devotional life it's got to be is it no it's not it it was friendships we just talked about that no no I said what is it and she said um, they have a hobby where they lose track of time I said, well, that's not even in the Bible. How could that be? He said, no, they have, a, they have a hobby where they lose track of time. They have some escape. They have something that they just get engrossed in. They just, they enjoy so much. They're able to let go of the difficulties, let go of the trouble, let go of all the things. 
and they just enjoy it, and they know that God wants them to enjoy this time. Now, for me, uh, that was easy. It was hiking when I lived in Arizona. Uh, mountains everywhere is beautiful. I now live in Florida. I mean, the, the highest level in Florida, you realize it's a trash dump uh, up near Mount Dora, right? It's, there, there's no place to hike, and so I have to find new routines, new rhythms, new, new life-giving activities for my life. I, I took up something last year. Uh, I love to coach, and I think you, can, you mentioned I love to coach. I decided to coach kids football uh, last year. Now, I don't have any kids, which is it's hard to get into a league where you don't have any kids, but I found a parent who trusted me, and we began to spend time together, and I just I lose track of time. Nine to 11-year-old boys that are learning to play football, learning the fundamentals, I just I love that. And I get lost in, in reading. I get, I get lost at the beach, but good news is the shoreline, you get to go left or right. It's easy to find your way back. But I, I just, I found some activities. And for me, you know, to understand, my wife and I moved from Arizona to Florida. At the same time, we became empty nest. So not only did my job change, we became empty nest, and none of my kids came to Florida with me, and they live in uh, Virginia and Nebraska and Arizona now. And my wife looked at me uh, after about three months of empty nest, and after the third night in a row of just her and I at dinner, she looked at me, she said, it's just you. It's really just you. I'm like, yeah, baby, but I don't think she meant it that way. I think, I think, it, was, I think it was just the opposite, you know? But we had to work hard to, to create life-giving, life-giving activities in our life. Life-giving thoughts, life-giving relationships, life-giving activities that honor God, whatever you do. But there's, there's one more thing. There's a, there's a, there's a thread of, through this tapestry. There's, a, there's glue that holds this whole thing together. Look at the three verses again, and this is going to be my, my biggest beg of you today. It says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, so which are called one body, and, and be thankful. It says, let the word of Christ rule in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making gratitude in your hearts, gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks. Give thanks, gratitude, give thanks. There, there's glue in these verses, the glue of gratitude. <laughs> Can we just admit how hard it's been to be grateful this year? Where everything has just been out of our control. We're just kind of like, uh, oh, what's next? We even have this phrase, well, it's 2020. I mean, that, because when things go bad, we just assume it's 2020, it's just going to go bad. But there's a choice that you and I make. There's a choice that we have to make of, of, of gratitude. The, the great thing about gratitude is this. Number one, uh, grateful people are grounded people. They, they recognize that God is at work regardless of what our circumstances are. God is in control and God is powerful and God is able to use this mess for his glory and for our, our growth. Grateful people are grounded in their faith in Christ. They're grounded in the word of God. They're grounded in the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives to overcome whatever circumstances we are because we know that God is still at work. Grateful people are grounded people. Grateful people are growing people. We're trusting God for more. Grateful people are generous people. We're living for something bigger than ourselves. We're living for the purpose that God designed us for. I've chosen, and hopefully you've chosen this in this season, a, a posture of humility, knowing that God is in control, 
A posture of gratefulness, knowing that God is still at work. A posture of generosity, knowing that you and I, we were designed to live for something bigger than ourselves. And to constantly curse the darkness rather than proclaim the light is just not the posture of a believer. Our choice is to trust God that God is at work no matter what. So we had this event, and I mentioned the GACX as we began. We had this event uh, that we were planning in the GACX this fall. We were hoping for 400 leaders, like the meeting in Denton, we had 400 leaders there. We were hoping for 400 leaders in Kissimmee, Florida um, to, to be at this event. We had to go digital online with it. And uh, we had 400 leaders from 10 countries that were going to come, and, and we were just so bummed. Uh, but we chose to trust God and move forward with it. Um, so the event came. The good news is we didn't have 400 leaders. We had 4,000 leaders. We didn't have 10 countries. We had 127 countries. And I got to lead communion with church leaders in some of the least reached peoples of the world. We got to celebrate our common union in Christ through communion. We got to remember that God is bigger than the circumstances uh, that we're in. Listen, I've tried to be very practical today. Life-giving thoughts, life-giving relationships, life-giving attitudes, activities, and then finally just gratitude, tying them all together. Are you grateful? Are you grateful for who God is, what he's done, and who you can become in, in him? Listen, the church will prevail. The church has outlasted every pandemic, every, every, you know, every situation in life, poverty, politics, you name it. The church is going to move forward. And God invites us to join him in what he's doing. But we've got to have this life-giving thoughts from Scripture, life-giving relationships of others who encourage and admonish us. Life-giving activities that prepare us for this next season of ministry and gratefulness grounding all of it in the Word of God, the will of God, and the goodness of God in our lives. Would you stand with me for a second? I want to just pray something over you as we end. Father, we're thankful for your kindness to us in Christ Jesus. I know for some here, it's, um, it's been a really, really hard season been hard on their minds and their hearts, and so give them life-giving thoughts. It's been hard on their marriages and families and relationships. So God, bless them with life-giving people around them. And it's been hard to find a break. It seems like we're all stuck in little circles. Help them to find activities that just remind them of your goodness and your kindness, the beauty of your creation, the brilliance and creativity that you've given people. Just help them to rest in Christ. Give them peace. Give them your word. And whatever they do, in the word or deed, may they do it all for the Lord Jesus. Giving thanks. And God, thank you so much for your son, for your word, for your spirit, for your people, for every spiritual blessing you give us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, for not withholding anything from those whose walk is upright giving us everything we need for life and godliness. And help us to not lose heart. Help us to never be lacking in zeal, to keep our spiritual fervor serving the Lord. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.